Hey, folks. I'm Ben Ben. Uh, I hail from New York, but I'm actually in uh, a town just outside of Philadelphia right now as I speak to you. Uh, it's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation to rock out to whatever tune I like. Let's, let's see. I think today I'll be uh, fiddling with the dial until I find something that I like a little bit. Um, but uh, it's nice to be here on a Saturday night. Um, I was asked to do this shortly after or maybe during, towards the end of the October uh, 2021 convention, which I helped put together. And, uh, you know, it was an honor to be asked to speak. Um, the phone meetings, I think, are really important lifeblood in our little fellowship. And uh, it's an area of MA I don't particularly participate in in a tremendous way. So to be asked uh, to be a speaker is definitely an honor. Um, all right, let's see. Experience, strength, and hope. Before I jumped on the line, I was like, any particular topic or anything? I like a focus. I'm a pretty unfocused guy. Just like, let her rip. Experience, strength, and hope. It's like, all right, let's do it. So I guess, you know, I'll, I'll keep it classic. What was it like? What happened? How did I find my way into this space of recovery from marijuana addiction? Uh, and what are things like now, and what is my life like now, and how do I, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, keep my relationship with recovery strong, or at least, you know, strong enough? So, um, as I, you know, spontaneously throw my mind backwards in time and try to figure out, like, what was the moment that things started to fracture for me, I would say that... Um, I'm going to try not to get like too deep or too explicit here, but I had a uh, pretty traumatic, a series of traumatic events when I was in the third grade. Um, there was like a moment of extreme peer pressuring. And I just remember this voice. This is a voice that I have learned to try not to listen to, uh, but it was a voice that spoke for the first time. A lot of my qualification will be for partitioned voices in my brain speaking to me. Um, and this voice basically just said, you know, who are you to say no? And this concept of who am I to say no proliferated for a long time before I touched an intoxicating substance. Um, and the theme was essentially uh, that I was the person whose value was probably less than other people and that if somebody wanted something from me, uh, I should probably just go ahead and give them that thing. That was kind of a, an early mindset. Um, this, this other uh, little fracture point I will share with you because it, it was devastating, but it's kind of comical. Uh, I was obsessed with Michael Jackson in 1991, and that was okay because, like, you know, Michael Jackson hadn't been accused of a whole bunch of stuff at that time. And uh, so it was, like, cool to be the, the kid in, in class who could do the moonwalk and, like, you know, imitate all of Michael Jackson's moves. And uh, it was probably the first and maybe the last thing that I ever studied, other than actually the 12 steps, um, with, like, real attention to te detail. Um, I remember freeze-framing uh, VHS recordings that I would make of, of Michael Jackson and, like, you know, trying to get, like, the angle of the flip of my jacket exactly right. Um, and I, I, you know, I did this with, like, the ferocity of somebody really, like, 
going after being a concert pianist. Like I was doing this like for real. Um, this is like, you know, child prodigy stuff. And, uh, and then, you know, like just as I was hitting my stride with it, uh, all of the uh, accusations around Michael Jackson's potential predilections uh, came to light. And I went from being like the cool kid who could do all this stuff. And it was something I, I should pause to say that I wasn't doing it because I wanted to be the cool kid. I did it because I thought I was drawn like a moth to a flame to the raw talent and expression of otherworldly creativity of Michael Jackson. Um, and that was something I knew from the earliest age that I wanted to participate in was um, acts of creativity that were like transcendent and like gave people a chance to like peer beyond the veil of this world. So I knew from, you know, eight, you know, age, whatever you are in the first grade, that that's something I wanted to do. So it wasn't about like being like the cool kid who could do all this stuff, but that, you know, that was nice. But I went from that overnight to being like the absolute outcast and I couldn't get off the school bus each day without being forced to moonwalk down the aisle and uh, with like everyone, including the bus driver, shouting, Jackson, Jackson. And, you know, I mean, in a movie, that would be funny. In real life, it was pretty traumatizing to like feel that lack of agency reinforce other stuff that I was going through. And so that collided with that, you know, who are you to say no voice to create a situation in which I, I, from that point forward, because dancing was such a physical activity, uh, really shut down as a physical human being and became like fully cerebral. Um, Flashing forward so that we can start talking about uh, my relationship with weed. Um, I was one of those kids who always looked down their nose at people who smoked weed. I remember when a good friend of mine tried it for the first time, I was just like, oh man, no. Um, and I remember distinctly the first time I did it, which was with, of course, that friend. And we made uh, a water pipe out of, I think, like an Avion water bottle and a Bic pen and like cut out bits of his screen. And uh, I got, first of all, I coughed up bong water all over the place. And then I got just like rip roaring the first time. And I remember thinking, I thought you couldn't get stoned the first time you smoked. And, um, this kid, uh, his family was very wealthy, and they had, like, a Steinway piano in their living room for show. It had clearly never been played. Uh, it was completely out of tune. And, you know, so here I am, this fish out of the water at this kid's house, like, stoned out of my mind. And I just remember two things about that night. One, uh, playing his out-of-tune piano and, like, tuning it with my mind, which felt really cool. And then eating Chips Ahoy cookies which are the, you know, pretty much the worst cookies under the sun and being like, these are amazing. Um, you know, I didn't smoke a hell of a lot in the rest of my high school years. And I even went through a couple years of college, which is like its own story I don't have time to get into without really doing more than dallying in it. Um, I, you know, I experimented with plenty of drugs and I chalked it up to regular experimentation. Um, in, my, in my freshman year, I experienced... Um, I think what other programs like SLAA would probably call like flickerings of early love addiction. I'm fortunate that that's never been a humongous part of my story, but I did have some heartbreak that if I had allowed myself to indulge in it, you know, more wallowingly than I did could have turned into a whole other problem. Um, And in that, in that heartache, I discovered another voice. So I, like I said, this is a story of voices and that voice was my singing voice typically in qualifications where I can look at people 
Um, I, I sing the first line that I wrote, but I'm, I'm not going to do that tonight. Uh, but the, but the, the first lyrics of the first serious song I wrote, a song called Given, as a completely non-religious person, uh, for some reason I wanted to play around, you know, this part of me wanted to play around with um, kind of religious lyricism. And I was not a lyricist. I, was a, <laughs> I went from Michael Jackson to Metallica, and I was at that time obsessed with heavy metal rhythm guitar. But this beautiful line came out, and the line, uh, the lyric is, uh, God in his infinite wisdom has given me to you, but your religion still interests me. Um, and I took, I don't know what I took it to mean at the time. Looking back, I took it as that even though I had at that point been living for 10 years-ish, a little less than 10 years with like a lot of sorrow and a lot of self-pity, that there was this other part of me that was tapped into that sort of infinite beyond that I had always craved to participate in as a kid. And that that was something that uh, I was given that, you know, it's the name of the song given. And that's something that if I chose to listen to, I could tap into in the, in the future. Um, it would have been way too easy for me to just have like turned into like somebody who was tapping into their best, <laughs> their best potential at all points. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I, I had this emerging side of me that was, you know, this kind of beacon of light and still a whole lot of me that was buried under a ton of mud um, and pain. And the, the thing that really allowed me to mute the pain the best, this was in my third year of college, and I transferred and I, I did extra years. Me and Tommy Boy ended up going to undergrad for the same number of years. And, uh, and the thing was delivery weed. And it was pretty much the week that I discovered delivery weed that like marijuana got its hooks in me all the way. Um, in the first year of being a total every, all day, every day stoner, um, things weren't so bad. I was writing a lot of amazing music. Um, and I do think, you know, I'm, by the way, I guess I didn't give any stats about myself. Uh, I've worked all 12 steps. I've got four years sober uh, from all mind and mood altering substances not prescribed by a doctor in eight years without a drink of alcohol. Um, just to sort of foreshadow here. But uh, at the time, you know, I can say I'm thankful that, you know, I had that little bit of comfort because that was real. Uh, I will say, you know, it probably nudged my craft in the right direction, which is, you know, I think common for creative people who use weed a little bit. Um, but for me, it became a prison almost instantaneously. And from the moment that I started having opportunities to be a professional uh, full-time uh, musician, uh, my relationship with marijuana had completely threatened everything. Um, I'll try to kind of breeze through what it looked like. There was, you know, a few years of like, oh, this isn't a problem. Look, I'm an artist. And then it became pretty clear to me um, probably four or five years in, uh, if not with major flickers earlier, that like this was a seriously incredibly damaging problem that I, I could not, I could not stop. I absolutely could not stop. I would go through extraordinarily painful withdrawal. Um, I was coughing up black stuff all the time. I knew I must be doing incredible damage to my body. At one point, I went in for like a pulmonary exam and like I had like the lungs of somebody like 15 years older than me, like the breath capacity. And as a singer, that's not particularly great. Um, I had to get endoscopies and stuff because I was so worried about what I was doing. Um, miraculously, it doesn't look like I did do a huge amount of damage, but my lung capacity definitely has been impacted. Um, I couldn't stop. And I wanted to, I promised to, I was in a relationship and I, I'm still in a relationship with this wonderful person. And I 
just really wanted to stop. I wanted to stop for them. I wanted to stop for music. I'm not sure if I wanted to stop for me, but <clears throat> I do remember the one time that I was able to get like two weeks on my own looking at the sunset and thinking it was so beautiful and just shedding a tear because I knew I was going to get stoned the next day. Like I could just feel like a relapse coming. Uh, I tried MA before I tried AA. Um, and I had a lot of instant resentment for the people who I met in that room. Um, I don't know why looking back on it, I, I still can't really explain it other than like, I'm sure like vampires don't love hanging out in churches. And this part of me, uh, you know, really did not want to be dragged into the sunlight. Um, I should talk about a few things that, uh, that I learned in that particular room, not at that time, but, um, but I did crawl back there years later. There's a sign-up, and for anyone who ever comes to District 8, this meeting is actually now something you can go to in person. It's the Monday Night Beginners meeting at the Mustard Feed. There is a sign in that room that says something to the effect of, this may not be verbatim, anything you place above your sobriety will be lost. Um, and I learned that the hard way because I placed a lot above my sobriety, and all of those things were, if not lost, then put within, you know, a, a micron's breath of being obliterated. And the things that I, that I kept from all that time, uh, it's nothing short of a miracle. So <clears throat> I found myself unable to stop and uh, to sort of condense the story a little bit, because this white light moment happened twice for me, thank God. I was, I'll just tell them both. Um, I was in this horrible mood. I was talking to my girlfriend, who is now my, my wife of six years, uh, yeah, six, between six and seven years, 2015. Uh, I can't do math. Um, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm good for nothing except for failing at art and consuming the world's resources and smoking weed. And, like, I broke, like, a wine bottle on the, on the ground because I wanted to demonstrate what a pained person I was. And I spent the night on the couch, and I was woken up, and this voice that was very much speaking to me in English, but it, had, it was coming from the same region as, as all of my best vocal moments, said, hey, you know about AA, go to AA tomorrow and tell them that you're an alcoholic. So I did that and went to a meeting at 930 in the morning, said those words, um, haven't had a drink since. That was December 7th of 2013. Um, but I didn't take the program super seriously. I, I stuck way too close to one home group, um, didn't get serious about taking the 12 steps. And so, you know, sure enough, six months later, I started smoking weed again and blah, 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 blah. Every day was the same. Is today going to be the day I quit? No. Ad nauseum, bringing myself to the brink of moral, complete, like, degradation and just hating myself. Um, and I, I, was, I found myself in the same place, kind of, where here I was, not drinking, but I was still a total zombie, and I was surrounded by cheeseburgers. I had spent, you know, the weekend completely debauched, and that voice spoke up again, and said, hey, you know, your life is meant for more than this. Your choice, go to an MA meeting or not. And uh, I didn't immediately. I went back to a whole bunch of AA meetings, worked up the nerve, and then went back to that same, that same meeting that I had chickened out of all those years ago. And that was, uh, that whole, that voice spoke to me on December 2nd of 2017 and I have been uh, free of all intoxicants 
since that moment in time, including nicotine. Um, so my path through MA, I think that I'm probably running a little bit short on time. It's hard to t- keep track. Uh, I'm, I'm good at 15 minutes. Give me 25 or 35, things are going to get messy. Um, but basically what happened was I jumped right in uh, this time around. I jumped right in. I started making friends. I started collecting numbers. I booked a ticket to go to the Seattle uh, convention. I think that's the 2018 convention. I went there, got my roots planted super deep in the soil of good recovery, made a lot of friends, um, and uh, asked a good friend uh, who I had gone there with um, to sponsor me. That person was my sponsor for a while, still my extraordinarily dear friend, but no longer my sponsor. Um, and what I learned to do was sort of like listen to the what what started to develop as I as I got more sober time under my belt, as I plugged into the program more, as I started taking the steps, you know, maybe even a little too seriously at first. Uh, you know, I heard somebody say, "Work your recovery the way you work your addiction," something like that. You know, take it as seriously as as you know as you fixed your Jones. And that that was the energy I brought to my early recovery. Um, But that over time, I was able to develop this, what we call, I think, you know, what I've heard called spiritual intuition, this sort of like a sense of magnetism towards the right thing and a sense of genuine repellence from things that could be wildly problematic, Um, which is, wow. I mean, that is a superpower. When when I learned how to dial into that, was kind of an amazing thing. It doesn't mean that I don't willfully, like, you know, charge through the that repelling feeling sometimes when for some reason I want something that's bad. Um, you know, the threshold of the limit of how bad a thing I'll <laughs> go against my intuition for has lessened quite tremendously. We're talking about, like, caramel. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I still do it. But the difference is I now have no excuse. Like I know, I know at this point, like right from wrong, safe from dangerous, um, enriching from degrading. And uh, that is a sense that I don't know if every lay person, quote unquote, lay person has, but I know that it's something that as a member of the recovery community, that the people who I respect, who have a ton of time, they seem to develop. Um, one of the things that I also developed was um, a genuine, uh, like, full-on uh, acceptance of the fact that my own thinking was quite flawed and faulty, and so that even when I felt these uh, big intuitive pulls, um, if there was any question mark whatsoever, you know, I would consult with a council of people who I had met in recovery who I, who I trust um, to this day if I feel like I'm in any kind of small jeopardy whatsoever. It doesn't matter how small. Like, I'll call three people. I don't, I'm not the kind of guy who calls a fellow addict every single day. Um, that's not been an area that I've been extraordinarily strong in, if I'm being frank. So I, I respect everyone who is, who's that good. But I am, you know, my training is good enough that, like, it's like, yeah, I, I pick up the phone and I, I, I call two to three fellows if I'm anywhere, even remotely near a sticky situation. Um, that's a huge part of my practice. And another part of my practice is um, really keeping it front and center that I have a, I have a brain disease. Um, those of us in MA, we 
are lucky that we have a really great book, Life with Hope. I think it's a fantastic book, and I've taken a look at just about all of the 12-step, you know, kind of quote-unquote manuals or Bibles out there. I think ours is a particularly good one, and I think one of the uh, one of the most beautiful parts of it wasn't even written by MA or, you know, an MA member as far as I know, but um, it's uh, what was, I think, called A Doctor's Opinion About Marijuana Addiction, which talks about the, uh, the damage um, that those of us with the predilection towards addiction that manifests as uh, marijuana addiction experience in the frontal cortex and the reward center of the brain. And so I keep it like front and center in my mind that like my brain has been hacked by a plant, no fault of the plant, but it's just how, it's how the thing works with the human brain to make me crave it as though it were, you know, on the priority list somewhere in the vicinity of oxygen and water that like without it in my system, my brain will start throwing the kitchen sink at me because it thinks that if I don't get this thing in my system, then I'm in, in serious peril. And, you know, included in the kitchen sink are a bunch of crazy justifications, um, persistent negative blah state. And it's, it's so sad. I hear people sometimes who are just off of weed being like, oh, but life is so boring now. And, and it's like, no, that's, you know, I, I don't want to scream at anybody. But for me, I know that anytime I feel that way, it's like, nope, that's the negative persistent state. It's a, a neurobiology, biological thing. It is not a truth whatsoever. So I keep that front and center in my mind. And I remember that I have a brain disease, very helpful for when uh, one is trying to live their life as though their sobriety is the most important thing. Because I have a lot of other priorities. I'm a married man. I'm about to, well, I'm about to be at some point this year. I may become a father. I hopefully will, which would be amazing. Um, I'm a, I just finished my last class of grad school, which is insane. I wrote a full-length screenplay this year. I have three, literally three albums in the bank. I'm at the top of my creative game. Uh, you know, I'm freaking ninja now that I'm not a freaking weed zombie uh and i'm i'm loving my life and so in order to protect it i have to keep that priority very very strong and clear in my mind that like if i am lucky enough to have a child like being a father comes second to being a sober person and having having the network that i have in this program being able to tap into those resources having taken the 12 steps and having really not um you know, not taking my time on step four, but like treated it like, you know, I, tr- I treated that like an obstacle course that I had to just get my ass through immediately. A lot of people lag. I'm not here to like step shame anybody, but I'm really grateful that I didn't take forever to get through step four. But like taking the steps really seriously, you know, treating this like a martial art, because honestly, I do think it's spiritual martial art against a deep, dark force of addiction that like society wants us to dally with, uh, you know, taking the steps seriously, taking this community seriously, and taking myself seriously is the best thing I ever did, and I'm reaping the rewards, and I've only got four years. They say you get your marbles back after five, so I'm closing in on, on number five, looking looking forward to doing that one day at a time, and uh, I'll only do it if I stay, you know, at least somewhat engaged in, in the magical mystery tour that is coming around to MA meetings and hanging out with you guys, so very grateful to explain my side of the story here tonight. Thank you for having me.